Welcome to Brain Milk Podcast. My name is Dash McIntyre. And my name is Adrian Pope. And we're the podcast brought to you by the Halfway Post, America's number one source of halfway real news. Check it out, Halfway Post on Twitter for some daily comedy and data news. Uh, but we've got a lot to talk about. There's a lot going on in politics. Uh, I know I personally got burnt out a little bit for a, the last couple of weeks because of the uh, I got really into the drama surrounding Kevin McCarthy becoming Speaker of the House and all of his failed votes, and then George Santos. So uh, I was kind of tweeting a halfway post uh, <laughs> like all day, and I was glued to the television watching that. Um, but now I've taken a couple of weeks off, and I'm kind of uh, motivated to get back into the uh, into politics. Not recommended, um, right? Yeah. Leading off, do you uh, have any thoughts on uh, that whole uh, Kevin McCarthy kerfluffle now that we're a little bit removed from it? Any thoughts on how it went, uh, how Kevin handled it, how the Republicans are going to handle having the uh, House majority with such a small majority for the next two years? Well, I think it's funny that when they were struggling to basically have a vote and get anyone elected, a.k.a. just Kevin McCarthy, like I, I like how some of his Republican supporters would talk to the media and say that this is democracy, it's messy, like this is just how it works. And it's like, what? A, like while I agree with that sentiment that democracy is messy, especially compared to other um, uh, types of government where one person just like runs a show, but it, it, it's kind of comical in the fact that like that's not like that's a improper use of what that means. For example, when you have people like Matt Gates basically willing to throw the government under the bus and undermine it from within, it's like that's not the, the messy part. When people say democracy is messy, that's not really what they mean. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, also it was messy. It, you know, the last time it was messy was 100 years ago. So the last time we had this kind of like a chaos was literally 100 years ago. So let's see, like 1920, what was that? Uh, Warren Harding, right, was president. And uh, or I guess 1922, Warren Harding was president, kind of a famously uh, messy presidency, a little corrupt, a lot of uh, marital affairs and stuff. Uh, But yeah, so the idea that, oh, this is politics, it's messy. Well, it's kind of uh, been outside of the norm for 100 years, for a century. And back then, you know, with, uh, you know, Warren Harding, wasn't he the president that got like nominated basically because they were so deadlocked, the Republicans couldn't even pick their presidential nominee. And uh, Warren Harding was kind of like the dark horse candidate that became kind of the compromise candidate. So even that was kind of messy, but that harkens back to like an era of like the backroom dealings with cigars, you know, where they're all arguing. And it, it, it's kind of interesting because this time around the cameras were on it. And from what I understand, basically when the new house takes like the party takes control of the house they basically pick and choose like where the camera's set up but because they didn't have the speaker yet c-span was kind of calling all their own shots and that's why we got all this great tv coverage (laughs) yeah so we got those like you know we got it on uh, camera that was kind of like broadcast live, you know, to, to America on like CNN and all the cable news shows of like that moment where uh, Matt Gates was like almost about to get into a fight. And then you saw, you know, like Kevin McCarthy walking up and down and like saying who knows what to people. And then, you know, there was that moment where he like whispered something in Matt Gates' ear that Matt Gates like gets really serious all of a sudden and gives him like a kind of like a, a little nod of like defeat, like, okay, fine, I'll vote present and not vote against you or whatever so he can get the speakership. 
And it's just kind of funny because, you know, on one hand, it's like the housewives of Congress, kind of, when you see that live and like kind of like these bitchy camera camera operators getting all the drama, you know. But on the <laughs> other hand, you can tell that like it would be so terrible for America if that was like that full time. If you get like Matt Gates, uh, uh, yeah, Matt Gates, Lord Bober, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and you get like all these like drama queens that just like are doing it for like the TV recaps, you know, like that would be so bad for politics. So it's one of those things where it's actually probably pretty good we don't film Congress 24-7 and have, like, free-range camera guys, <laughs> you know, getting all the gossip, you know. I don't know. Any thoughts on that? No, I think that's absolutely true because a lot of those people, every time they voted against Kevin McCarthy, would put out another fundraising email <laughs> bragging right, about yeah. what they had just done. And, I, and you're right. I think it would have been a it would have been way different if the cameras weren't basically rolling and showing what they were doing. I mean, essentially, that was like having – the democratic process on Instagram where you could immediately just show everybody what you're doing. And, and, and a lot of that's just grandstanding and it's like a uh, Kabuki theater. Um, but you're right. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's one of the reasons they don't really like uh, cameras in the Supreme court. You don't want the, right. you know, the criminal justice systems, like the, the highest court of the land to basically be Kabuki theater, which is essentially what we saw during that entire nomination process for the speaker. Yeah. Um, so what do you think about Kevin McCarthy? Do you think he's going to be a su uh, successful speaker no. of the House? <laughs> well, <laughs> Will he go down in history impressing us all? The track record of uh, what it takes to become a Republican Speaker of the House, I mean, you've seen it with Paul Ryan and John Boehner. Um, he'll probably be hating his life in about six weeks. <laughs> six you weeks? Know. I think he hated his life on that vote. Well, I mean, <laughs> like yeah. Somewhere but, between the, the first vote and the, what was it, the 15th or the 18th that it ended up total, ended up uh, ultimately being? Well, we're going to see what happens with the debt ceiling because uh, a lot of people have commented that really nothing of importance needs to be passed too quickly. There's not really anything crazy going on in the world that the House needs to act. But when the government can't pay its bills anymore, we'll, we'll really see how much Kevin McCarthy hates his job when he's basically going to have to either go along with the moderate Republicans, the few that there are, and the Democrats. And make a deal with Democrats. Yeah, yeah, fund the budget or fund the government or basically immediately have his own party call for his resignation. And that's like the weird yeah, dynamic because yeah. no matter what happens, we obviously, the Congress has to pass uh, some kind of funding for the budget so we don't default and ruin the world economy. But it's it's just amazing to me that the Speaker of the House, like it's already clear that to do what's absolutely necessary to prevent an economic collapse is going to sacrifice his job. And, and we all knew that before he even got the job. Yeah, it is kind of funny that he's going to basically like burn any goodwill he has if, you know, doing this deal with the... Uh I'm calling them the jihadists because they're basically congressional, like legislative jihadists, because I think the Freedom Caucus really does want to push America over the, the debt, uh, the fiscal cliff of the uh, debt ceiling. Um, obviously, you know, the American dollar is like the kind of like bedrock of the entire world economy because like the investment in U.S. debt is such a safe investment for which all other kind of like investments and currencies kind of like base themselves off of their value like according to the dollar. So I mean you really have no idea like the downstream effects that like going over that fiscal cliff would have. Um, However, it is funny to think that Kevin McCarthy might, you know, like he might be like the uh, the shortest lived speaker because, I mean, he, he basically gave in saying that they can vote to have a new speaker like at any time, basically. And so, I mean, they're going to get upset if he uh, betrays him, does a deal with Democrats, lets the moderates kind of like ice out the, the jihadist uh, Freedom Caucus. 
Um, so well, that's why it's an impossible to... situation because you're going to have the right. Kevin McCarthy's going to have to go along with Democrats for something, and it could be something as benign um, as you know, for example, the simplest of regulations that they want to enact, right? You could probably have a majority of the Republican caucus want to do something that Democrats might even be 80%, 90% on board with. But just, you know, all it takes is one person to have, you know, implement or adopt a resolution to have the speaker vacate the floor. And his his life is infinitely harder and, and his career is probably over as Speaker of the House. But I mean, yeah. it's absurd because at the end of the day, you have 20 of those people who, uh, who don't want the government to function they like it's you've got the terrorists like in in the congress basically saying we don't want the government to function and w the rationale is really that they don't think government can function but then it's ironic that they are the reason why nothing can, can get done and why the speaker of the yeah. house is almost certainly going to have to vacate at some point uh and it's uh it's difficult because you know the freedom caucus uh they're not afraid to shoot the hostage yep. they want us to go over that uh the debt ceiling fiscal cliff so there's that. And now speaking of the numbers of the Republican majority and Kevin McCarthy's numbered troubles, uh, George Santos, <laughs> uh, there's uh, increased calls for him to step down and resign from uh, his Long Island kind of like, uh, I guess, local community Republicans. Um, Kevin McCarthy, obviously, uh, it's such a small majority. So, uh, you know, the conventional wisdom is that if that goes to a special election, it's almost certainly going to be a Democratic pickup because it's kind of like a fluke that George Santos won to well, begin with. Well, it's a with. Biden plus eight district, right? Yeah. But I guess George Santos was, I don't know. What do you think? Was he able to, like, just convince people that he was maybe a Democrat? Who knows what he was saying at all those campaign events? He lies about everything. Was he just telling people he was a Democrat or something? I don't even know. Well, that was the whole yeah, point like, of him saying that he was Jewish was because he was going to somewhat mm, liberal uh, Long Jewish Island Jews organizations in York, yeah. and saying, hey, I'm Jewish. And, like, you know, he, he really found a way to finagle. Uh, I mean, all based on lies, of course, but uh, basically a background that would <laughs> be strategically uh, designed to hopefully get the most amount of swing voters, independent voters, Democrats, Republicans, etc. And it's yeah. just funny that every part of his background is a lie. <laughs> the funniest thing that came out now, uh, I guess it's still kind of developing, but the idea that, uh, or the, I guess the fact that he used to be a drag queen in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro, and there's like pictures uh, allegedly of him in drag that I mean I guess the picture literally looks like him in drag he denied it and then apparently people found uh, they looked on his Instagram and apparently George Santos's Instagram account follows like tons and tons of drag queens <laughs> so, well, that's entertaining sure. <laughs> yeah, all they're just constituents yeah. of mine <laughs> yeah it's just yeah it's just the lamestream media setting him up somehow you know uh, so so some other elements of the new Republican House majority um, uh, what do you think about the kind of power dynamic of Marjorie Taylor Greene taking Kevin McCarthy's side? I mean, it's kind of a rare instance of like actual good strategy, like political aptitude from Marjorie Taylor Greene. Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates were, yeah, surprising. So Gates and Boebert were kind of like iced out, but they were like the holdouts. Um, I guess it worked out ultimately for them because they got Kevin McCarthy to, you know, promise who knows what. There's like literally that, you know, allegedly a, a secret, I don't know, three page addendum or whatever that no one sees. Like the moderates haven't seen when they voted. So like on the House rules. So I guess we're in for a surprise when when things start like uh, like no longer making sense on like the decisions Kevin McCarthy's making. You know, who knows how it's playing into this these like secret agreements or whatever. Uh, but what do you think about Matt Gates and Boebert going ahead? Have they burned any bridges? Do they still have power? Because, again, they're like the terrorists willing to shoot the hostage. 
Well, they still have power. Obviously, the majority is so slim, and they're getting spots on committees, which is probably a lot of what they wanted. Um, I mean, to me, it's just amazing that you're going to have non-serious people. Like, there's a 9-11 truther on, like, the Homeland uh, Security <laughs> uh, right. Committee. And um, essentially... I don't know. It's like the it's like the classic Republican move of the executive branch putting people who are ideologically, politically and like blatantly opposed to the department that they're running's existence and putting them in charge of it. And it's like everything from like, you know, you have a guy they there was that like long uh, John Oliver segment about some guy they were trying to have run the like uh, National Weather Service or something like that, and he, the guy was like a CEO of a company that directly competes with it, and you know it's like uh, Betsy DeVos basically being put in charge of the education department despite wanting to privatize everything and not believing right. that public uh, education is a good thing. Um, so I mean I don't know it's. It's going to be more of the same. Obviously, their capability to do anything is going to be limited by the fact that their priorities are basically just investigating uh, silly things that don't make any sense and most people don't even know anything about. Um, like, I mean, all of the com- how, how many hours of the committee's time are going to be wasted on like the Hunter Biden laptop and Hunter Biden? Oh like, yeah, for sure. And, and yeah, so and Jim Jordan's going to create who knows how many new <clears throat> Benghazi esque. Uh, investigations now that he has uh, control of uh, his committee. Now, I was thinking about this. I think uh, it's interesting because some of the rules that uh, they're changing and the House Freedom Caucus like totally demanded is that basically having legislation go like the traditional way through the committees and then like having every member be able to bring up amendments. And it's fascinating because, you know, part of me thinks, okay, you know, that's actually like in theory a good idea that the House would maybe go back to a little bit like its original like intention where you actually get House members all bringing up their own bills. You actually vote on everything. You actually come to consensus. However, I think it's like it's like completely misleading because that idea of like going back to the basics is uh, completely irrelevant to the modern era of our hyperpartisan politics, because the only reason we have these strong speaker of the houses like Nancy Pelosi who basically kind of rule with an iron fist and they control what goes up but like the only reason we got to that point is because Republicans are the ones that just do so much subterfuge throughout the legislative process that normal legislation like that is literally impossible because in the Senate side you get you know Republicans filibustering everything they don't like and threatening to filibuster nearly everything else and so just like the idea that like the Senate it's so impossible to get things through like if you don't have a super majority like nothing's going through unless it's like watered down that republicans will vote for it and even then they don't vote for it because it gives the democratic president a victory that they don't want to help the democratic president's like poll numbers or whatever so it's like there's there's no real way for the house to return to that like glory age of everybody having their own agency to like have their own amendments and have their own say on everything because one anything the house passes the senate's not going to pass so like like the our whole political process is basically turned into senators coming to some super agreement because there's only a hundred of them and not 435 like the representatives so there's a little bit more friendships across the aisle they can do stuff and then basically the house just has to rubber stamp whatever gets through the senate because i mean like what is the house and it's like it's what's what kevin mccarthy's problem now he's going to do all of these like showboat votes but what what will the 
what will Kevin McCarthy and the Freedom Caucus vote on and get passed in the House that could possibly, you know, even get taken up on the floor for the Senate? Like, they're going to pass all of this dumb shit, like, you know, totally defund the FBI and the IRS. And like, the Senate, you know, like, Chuck Schumer is not going to bring that up for the floor vote. It's just purely showboating. So, like, changing these rules to give every. Yeah. But to give every member like this showboating power to basically just get on TV, go on Fox News, say, I did this, I did that, I stopped this, I killed this, I, you know, I had this dumb amendment to like, uh, I don't know, uh, like, you know, like take away Joe Biden's <laughs> his, his income, you know, like stop paying the president, you know, it's like all this shit. It's just like it, the next two years are just going to be such like utter chaos and it's all going to be pointless. And then they're all complain, and it's not even going to help their issue. They want the House to work like normal, but Republicans are the reason the House doesn't vote or uh, doesn't work at all, you know? Well, I agree, but to some degree for them, it doesn't matter. They have no, I mean, what policy agenda do they have? They didn't even go into the election with one. Right. The yeah, Republican true. Party didn't even have a platform in the presidential election. They don't they don't care. They have like all they want to do essentially is own the libs. And that's not really a policy you can implement. So all they need to do and and all they need to do to implement their policy of own the libs is just run these committees and investigate a bunch of dumb shit. That's all they yeah. can do. And they don't want to do like Matt Gates doesn't he doesn't wake up thinking, oh, I'm going to try to do X, Y, and Z for the American people today. He's just like, I'm going to go and showboat. And, you well, know, hey, that's not, that's not entirely fair to Matt Gates because Matt Gates does wake up and say, how can I uh, make it easier for sex traffickers to mm-hmm. sex traffic? Because that's like, that's like his real, the only legislative accomplishment I can think of was he was the one lone <laughs> vote against <laughs> the, the sex trafficking regulations that the, the Congress passed, I think, the last term. So... You know, be fair to Matt Gates. He does have some priorities. He's willing to, you know, buck the party. <laughs> go well, for. Well, and that's the funny thing about our politics is because we go through kind of waves where one political party is a little more, I wouldn't say ascendant, but uh, has a little more, um, um, I get, what's the word I'm looking for? Enthusiasm, because they actually have uh, policy ideas that they want to implement and actually right. get through. I, there's this famous, like, um, historical moment. I think it's like in in the 70s or something when a lot of Republican and conservative based think tanks start talking about all the policies that will end up being like the Reagan revolution and stuff. And I just there's this moment where like this this like this champion of the uh, champion Democrat of Congress basically says, like, my God, like the Republican Party is the party of ideas now. And like basically the whole point was that like with uh, all the inflation and stuff and the malaise and uh, during the Carter administration, a lot of Democrats just felt burned out because with the inflation, they were basically unable to keep expanding uh, kind of the great society type spending programs. And they were trying to make uh, budget cuts and the economy wasn't doing well. And then, you know, you really have that period where the Republican establishment starts like kind of dominating, obviously, uh, uh, electorally with like, yeah, you know, having control they of kind the of House. swing the. Yeah, they swing yeah. the national conversation with new ideas. Well, I think that's kind of something that's happening with conservatism in general. Like, you can tell the Republican Party here has no ideas and no agenda. Like, mm-hmm. you know, in 2020, Trump had literally no platform, and the party just said, whatever Trump wants, that's what we're for. And it's kind of the same thing in Britain, too, in yeah. a lot of countries. And, uh, you know, like, Britain has literally no ideas. The Tories, uh, they've got literally nothing. Liz Truss came in, and, like, mm-hmm. all she could think to do was try to cut taxes, and then immediately she gets ousted, and they stop that because, that like, clearly that's not going to work. So I think that's 
maybe why, uh, I guess on a depressing note, why conservative parties around the world are turning into like such ethno-nationalist kind of xenophobes, because they really have no policy. The policies they've been pushing for like 30, 40, 50 years have not helped people and won't help people. And it's been kind of proven. So all they're really well, just fair, doing is doubling. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, to be fair, I don't know if it's always the conservative political establishment. Well, I'm saying right now. I think think conservatism right now in this like ending Mm -hmm. globalized era where we're kind of like losing our enthusiasm for free trade and going a little bit back into kind of zero-sum games on uh, foreign policy and whatnot with spheres of influence with like Russia and China, Iran, America and the West and Ukraine and stuff like that. I do think it's just like the paradigm shifting and like economic conservatism as we know it is kind of like is like like limping along close to death and like i think conservative <laughs> conservatism across the world just kind of needs uh like some kind of different approach whereas what? right now you yeah. see liberals in a lot of countries with the enthusiasm with ideas for change and it's kind of like uh you know i guess if you could consider like going back to like reagan and thatcher and just like that wave of kind of like free trade neoliberalism that's kind of on its way out and we're kind of like on the precipice like you know fumbling around in the dark because like i you know probably both parties need kind of new uh directions but at least right now democrats Democrats in America are the only ones with like actual ideas to try things, you know? Well, yeah, and I think it's country specific, but to use American as, as an example of what you just said, I mean, in some ways, a lot of conservative movements are basically even like retrograding a little bit where we're no longer debating uh, some form of Obamacare or what the government's role in healthcare is. In a lot of ways, since like 2011, we've almost gone back to uh, basically a hundred years in the past where we're, we're basically still debating like the basic tenets of the New Deal. And like obviously that's American centric, but I think there, there are kind of similar political movements in other countries. I mean, you've, you've surely seen it in European countries where a lot of political right parties are actually kind of going back towards a almost hundred year old uh, like fascism light type kind of situation where uh, you're and, and, and I think that's one of the problems with human nature, maybe, that probably, you know, goes in cycles in history is that just you get to a point where some people start doing better than others for any number of reasons that could be particular to any individual country or group of countries or regions. And I think you do have an issue where you do get kind of a political blowback where you start people, you start getting voters to get more like ultra conservative. They, they don't only want to like oppose like the political party or the dominant political movement at the time. They want to basically undo it. And I think, um, I don't know. I mean, you see this in, in, in some people who talk about uh, Russia and Putin and they're kind of like apologists for Russian behavior. I mean, it's, it's really, it's like a hundred year old ideas basically coming back to the fore. And I don't know, for, at least in America, I feel like you have a large and lar- a larger and larger segment of the Republican Party talking about how maybe we shouldn't support Ukraine and like, who cares? It's like, I don't, I don't know how you take that position without being like basically having an ideology or a political viewpoint or worldview that's a hundred years old. Like the fact that America should not at least try to help a country fighting for itself, a democracy at that too, against a (laughs) clearly autocratic country that's like hell-bent on basically just conquering people. I mean, mean, Ukraine is a country of like 40 million people. 
Um, and you're talking about Russia, a declining country with a it's been kicked out of the global economy in a lot of ways, but they have a declining demo, uh, demography. Uh, they're probably, you know, they're a failed petrostate at this point. But, you know, the fact that you have a couple leaders in this one country basically conquering their neighbors, I mean, that's literally 100 years old of a concept. And, like, I yeah. think I, it's silly that the Republican Party, I mean, kudos to, like, pe- Republicans in the Senate who, you know, passed the Ukraine aid bills, like, during the lame duck session and talking about, you know, Mitch McConnell went over there. And I think that that was a powerful message that, you know, Republicans and Mitch McConnell went to Ukraine, met with Zelensky. You know, you saw the standing ovations when Zelensky spoke in Congress. But like the fact that and and we've talked about this before, kind of going on a tirade here, but the Republican opposition, especially among a lot of the people who are against Kevin McCarthy, you know, they talk about how we shouldn't give American money to foreign countries because we need that money for ourselves and we should be using it and spending it on Americans. And it's such a bad faith argument because Because they refuse to spend any money here. They don't want the government doing anything. They don't like taxes. They don't want any money being spent on anyone. So it's just totally disingenuous for a short-term argument for an issue that really, like, the the fundamental end of that issue is that they just like Putin. They like fascism. They like that kind of dictatorial, autocratic tendency of, you know, the Putin regime. So, yeah, it's totally bad faith. Well, and I I walk past all the time when I'm walking my dog. Little park pavilions made of, like, uh, cement and, like, uh, you know, little rocks and stuff and like they're they're 100 years old basically and they say like 1938 1937 wpa and it's like all park spending and like the idea that like just today just as like franklin roosevelt was called a communist in the 30s because he wanted to pay poor people to go build parks for americans right you know the same thing with biden right biden is the most centrist like normal you know slap your back kind of pro-union you know just regular run-of-the-mill democrat of the last 70 years but they're acting like He's uh, like, you know, they call him a communist, you know, and it's just absurd. And and the the whole I want to say that, like, for a significant portion of the Republican electorate and and quite a few Republicans in in power is certainly in the House of Representatives. I mean, it's like an entirely outdated uh, worldview that they're just perpetuating. And like, that's my go back to my point earlier about how it's not just that they don't have ideas. It's like they're reverting back a hundred years of human history <laughs> and and for yeah. what so that they can own the libs and make a couple extra tens of thousands of dollars this quarter for for small donor fundraising it's it's kind of absurd yeah now speaking of that let's talk about uh maybe some areas where uh, democrats are having pretty good success the biggest uh like kind of case study right now is actually Michigan because Democrats just took control of the entire state government there. Uh, the governor, uh, Gretchen uh, Whitmer, just got uh, reelected pretty handily by like a d- margin of uh, of the vote that like uh, matches kind of like Ron DeSantis. So everyone was up in arms about how Ron DeSantis is like the future of the Republican Party. But, you know, you don't really hear the same praise for uh, Gretchen Whitmer, which is interesting. But uh, right off the bat, Michigan Democrats are kind of going out swinging. They're working to codify LGBTQ rights. They're protecting election workers, repealing right to work, which is the big anti-union thing that a lot of Republican states love to kill unions. Uh, they're ensuring union wages and construction. So uh, do, you think, uh, do you think Michigan will be a nice kind of like liberal laboratory in the way that, uh, you know, in like the idea of... Um, I guess like with the the separation of the state powers with the federal powers, in theory, like all the states should be kind of like laboratories trying new things and then seeing what works. Um, 
And like, you know, I, it's an obvious comparison to Kansas, which was the big Republican uh, test like case study about a decade ago uh, when uh, Governor Brownback took over and, you know, cut taxes, gutted all the education system, did everything like as exactly like Republicans, you know, like their their biggest, wildest dreams. And then they basically fucked over Kansas. And now Kansas actually has had like Democratic governors for a while and is actually almost becoming like a border swing state. It's like getting a, you know, it's trending toward purple, uh, partly because Republicans screwed up the state. And then like, obviously, the you know, in Kansas, it was that uh, example of them uh, voting hardcore for abortion rights, you know, a Republican state that kind of surprised everybody just like destroying the pro-life kind of position on that mm-hmm. uh, yeah. uh, referendum or whatever the, the, the people voted for in the last election. Uh, but what do you think about that? Are you are you bullish on uh, uh, Michigan here? Oh, absolutely. And I think um, I think the governor, um, I, I listened to a podcast, her talking to um, David Axelrod on his podcast, and, and she is, uh, I think, a very good politician, very smart. Um, so it could be a, a huge rising star. And and honestly, I mean, in my opinion, it's like, you know, not to, to forecast who ought to run or who will run, especially with an income, incumbent Democrat president. But I think she'd be a great candidate and, and probably make for a great president. But I think I agree with you that... Um, I mean, I'm, I'm super for like the idea of 50 states and 50 states can do their own thing. And I mean, it, it, I go back and forth because it's complicated, because obviously, if you have one state that wants to go off a libertarian deep end, um, you know, that does normally kind of hurt, especially poor people. And it's not necessarily easy to say, oh, well, they can just go to Michigan or they can go to New York. That's kind of like a bad. Ar- I mean, it's it's a it's an argument, but it's not necessarily a good one for how to, like, help people who don't want to live in that state anymore. Um, I will say it like it's funny that like so often it really doesn't matter whether you have a Republican or a Democrat as a governor or in control of the legislature. But it does seem odd that when Republicans get control of all three branches or two branches of a, a state government, they start doing things that are clear violations of kind of obvious civil rights. And I think like one of the examples is like how many red states want to basically end gay marriage, even though it's a law of the land supported by the Supreme Court. But it's also one of those things. And Congress like, now. <laughs> yeah. And con- yeah, exactly. But I mean, it's one of those things. It's like it's it's funny that we have these like stories of like, oh, Democrats, you know, uh, surprisingly take control of the entire state government apparatus of a state. And like, oh, look at all the things that are like protecting like this list right here, protecting election workers. OK, that's like a good thing. Like nothing. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, uh, controversial about that, like repealing right to work. OK, that's like a Democratic thing. But like codifying LGBTQ rights, just protecting, you know, the tens of thousands of gay people who are married and, you know, some of them have kids and trans people. And yeah. And basically and stuff, preventing yeah. the ability in the future for, you know, who knows how many thousands of families to be arbitrarily and legally broken apart for no reason. I mean, it is kind of funny that like when Democrats take control of a state government, like, yeah, you can say they go too far on certain issues, but they're trying to help people. But on the convert, like conversely, when you hear about like a Republican led government sometimes taking over and drastically changing or doing a 180 of how the state used to be run, very quickly it gets uh, pretty uh, into that. Well, the Republicans will get into basically trying to deny people certain constitutional rights. Now, to some degree, you know, that's obviously uh, you know, before LGBTQ rights were implemented by the Supreme Court and state laws, um, it was a little iffy there. But I mean, it's 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 weird that like you have Democrats take over and basically try to protect people's 
constitutional rights or um, human rights or all these things. And then when Republicans take over, you basically have them infringing on people's freedoms in any number of ways and basically just becoming culture warriors or implementing the culture war as state policy, which is probably never a good thing. Yeah, I mean, the culture wars are just so dumb. I mean, of course, it's 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 complicated because like culture wars, like and issues and debates are not really policies. So you get elected as a culture warrior like Ron DeSantis, like mm -hmm. you're not really like you can't really legislate the things you want to see in the culture. You can't force people to be Christian. You can't force people to pray. You know, you can't force like apathetics, like kids in high school to like enjoy sitting there and praying to God if you mandate that or whatever. And mm -hmm. then like you look at some of the accomplishments of these like Republican governors who uh, maybe have uh, their eyes on higher office than being governor. And it's like things like you're rounding up immigrants and just sending them to like Kamala Harris's house or Martha's Vineyard, you know, uh, like is happening with uh, Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis and like picking fights with corporations who like you consider woke when really those corporations just have a vested interest to not like turn off all the Gen Z kids who are going to be their future yeah. Uh, yeah. customers because Gen Z kids are like way less bigoted than the average, you know, like 45 year old, 50 something uh, like conservative that's like in charge of these state house like legislation, legislatures and, you know, being governor, obviously. Um, but it, it's an interesting idea because this is something that I noticed that a, a lot more blue states, like very, very blue states that always vote blue in Democratic, uh, sorry, in elections, um, they tend to have Republican governors much more often. Obviously, Mitt Romney was governor of Massachusetts. That's a big one. But right now we've got Republican governors of Maryland, Connecticut, New Hampshire, Vermont, and then Virginia just recently voted, even though Virginia is increasingly a pretty reliable blue state on, uh, you know, in terms of the Senate and uh, like presidential elections. What do you think that is? What do you think the difference is? The Democrats are more likely to have a Republican governor, but like, you know, you don't see Arkansas having a Democratic governor. They just, they pick someone like Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's just like as, as big a like culture warrior as you can kind of get. But what do you think of that difference? I would say that part of it is probably that, um, it, especially in purple states or states, I don't know, it's, it's hard to say. I think to some degree, when you have Republican Republicans who know they're in a state that typically trends blue or is normally blue. I mean, you have a much more serious type of candidate basically get Republican primaries there. Um, I would assume that in places that are deep, deep red, um, really the only concern is primaries. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't know what it is. I guess part of it you might want to look at like the population of cities vis-a-vis -vis or in relation to the rural population and how that might have an impact. Where like, for example. If, if like the only way you can be a viable Republican for a statewide election in like, you know, Maryland is you have to be able to be palpable uh, or palatable uh, to voters in Baltimore and, and some of the other big cities. Um, I wonder if that's part of it. Um, I mean, there have been periods like in 2008 when the entire Northeast didn't have a single Republican in Congress representing any of those states at the federal level. So I guess at the outset, if you're going to be a Republican and not move to a more red state, you kind of have to be a more moderate, which is more palatable to Democrats. And I think part of that, too, is like maybe that um, a lot of, I don't know, maybe there's more independence in certain states. I don't know. What do you think? It, like, I don't know what that well, would be. Well, I don't be. know. Because um, like analogous, there's only really, I, who can you think of Democrats in a solid Republican state other than Joe Manchin? I don't think there's really any governors in John any Tester red states. John Tester in Montana, but I mean, Montana's 
not that's true. Necessarily. Montana's increasingly uh, purple. I think Montana is yeah. actually something that because uh, there's a couple big cities that the state is just so small populationally. I think uh, I think that's actually a good idea for Democrats in the future to like really just you know get out every single voter and uh, like what is it Helena and I guess uh, what's the other Billings is that the other big city in Montana I guess. Mm-hmm. But I mean I imagine that's like you know that's actually uh, increasingly kind of like almost a swing state in presidential elections, but. I don't know. I think Democrats, uh, maybe just they just don't care. Maybe Republicans try harder in these states and there's more of an apparatus. But like maybe just, you know, in a state like Montana or, you know, uh, like Alabama, you know, some like rural western mountain states, you know, Wyoming. I Maybe Democrats just don't put any effort in, whereas maybe Republicans uh, just, you know, I think Republicans are kind of more more uh, consistent voters anyway, just in terms of like population trends. You know, they're just more likely to vote more often. Maybe that has something to do with it. Well, for but. the Democrats in red states, I think there's definitely a part of the answer is just incumbency. The fact that you've had John Tester and Joe Manchin there for decades um, and big names in that state for many years. Um, I can say for a fact that it's probably fair to say that a lot of very red states that a lot of serious Democrats probably don't even bother to run. Um, yeah. I don't know what that, like, it's like, I mean, you, you're starting to see the, the trend in Georgia as it, gets be, as it becomes more purple. You do get more Democrats who are statewide viable, and there's just enough independent voters or moderate voters who are willing to cross party lines. Um, I feel like sometimes you have states where, you know, this has been a trend since Obama became president, but sometimes Republican primaries lead to candidates that are just like comically unqualified or inappropriate for the actual district or state that they're running in. Um, And that might not be the case in, like for example, in California, I mean, the far left could put up someone who's comically absurd for the role of senator from the state of California, but they'll still win a primary and then therefore be the candidate that wins. And you probably have the same trend in states like Alabama and Mississippi and Texas. So um, I don't know, I guess there's, That'd be an interesting thing to do more research on and have another podcast about. But there's got to be something, a, a, a bunch of different reasons, like the how many people are in big cities and between the different demographics yeah. that vote each party, whether it's even possible. Like, because at some extent, you know, if you're a serious Democrat in Mississippi and you want to be in politics, like, it's probably just a waste of your time to run. So why would you even bother? You should probably move to a different state. Yeah. yeah. If you're really, really, that's your life goal. Um, let's move on to uh, some Republican policy here. There was an interesting Axios story that got a lot of buzzes last week about food stamps, where the Iowa GOP is proposing food stamps reform. Uh, and so I just thought this was, you know, this uh, set off my radar of small government, you know, but <laughs> their, their plan is basically to uh, include no white grain, no uh, baked, refried or chili beans, no fresh meats, only canned meat products. They're banning slice-cubed or crumpled cheese from food stamps, no American cheese. And I just thought that was kind of funny that the, I guess it's in theory it's to like save money, I guess, or maybe to have kind of like a social Darwinist thing. We'll, we'll tell you what you can eat with the, <laughs> the government money that we give you. But it is kind of funny because like, it's like what's conservative and small government in the traditional way Republicans have been talking about that those two terms in the last like 20 years. Like how small government is this? 
<laughs> well, it is silly because in a state like Iowa, food stamps is a program that actually benefits farmers because you're essentially guaranteeing that the federal government or state, whoever runs stamp or the different uh, food stamp uh, agencies and organizations, certainly nonprofits are involved as well. But basically, you're guaranteeing farmers extra consumers who are going to buy yeah. your food products. So, I mean, food stamps is one of those programs that I believe, if I recall correctly, I think Brookings did an analysis on this. And what they found was that uh, food stamps as a whole has like a 1.5 to 1 ratio where for every dollar they spend, they probably basically create a dollar fifty or more of actual economic yeah. benefits to the economy. So to some degree, I mean, food stamps is silly where farmers are getting more money and uh, in the form of like state and nonprofit and the federal government literally subsidizing them and buying some of their food product that otherwise they probably wouldn't plant because they wouldn't make money. Yeah. Um, and, you know, essentially plus downstream them, of that. What? Plus downstream of that. Once you start getting into the fact that like kids can eat more food, like mm -hmm. the families have more feed to feed kids, like immediately you start getting like massive benefits because immediately like the kids do better in school, you know, with less poverty, they're more likely to like not get get pregnant if they're a girl they're more likely to graduate high school they're more likely to go to college they're less likely to like have a bunch of kids and then repeat the cycle of poverty so once you start getting into all those downstream benefits i imagine it's like it's hard to quantify obviously but the benefits probably start getting like you know five dollar returns if you're not paying for like the prisons for all these kids that had terrible childhoods and were hungry and didn't develop right you know all the Absolutely. you know child health care you know like there you like almost can't even begin to quantify the downstream benefits of that well, and that's long term, and those are probably immense, especially in the way that you just described. In the short term, too, I mean, you got to imagine a fa let's say a family has a thousand dollars to spend a month, and they get two hundred fifty dollars in food stamps, whatever you know benefit it is. Well, that's two hundred fifty extra dollars that they can go spend on something else. So that's also right. part of that accumulating benefit. Where and and in a lot of small town communities, like if you're a community that maybe doesn't even have a Walmart. Uh, you have mom and pop grocery stores actually getting a lot of that money too, and it's supporting small businesses, and, and, and so it's just silly. And, and part of the part of this idea, I guess, that the Republican um, Party in Iowa is trying to do is just be mean, because you know they always say with Trump and other people that cruelty is sometimes the point. And if you're just trying to make people's lives harder who are on food stamps and basically keep them from being able to buy like. Like the fact that you wouldn't let them buy real meat, they have to buy canned meat. Like that is such a <laughs> crappy yeah, thing to right. do to people. Like, yeah. I mean, I think part of that is just that cruelty is really the uh, sub goal of that. What do they really yeah. want to do? They want to make it harder and more painful and just like less beneficial yeah. to a person to be on any type of government welfare uh, or program and basically cut it from within. If because like yeah. you know, you're never going to get people to you're never going to get a majority in either house of Congress to cut the agency that oversees it manages it so what you can do is you can create administrative burdens that make it harder for people to qualify to get it and just which is another thing of making people's lives harder for no reason but then also yeah. just gutting the actual benefit itself or making it worse in some way um yeah. so that's like your but second i think best. democrats should uh I think Democrats should capitalize on this. You get Republicans saying, oh, Joe Biden doesn't want this. Joe Biden doesn't want that. Like, I think, you know, I don't think they will because Democrats, uh, I guess, are not good at politics and they care more about, like, the more serious issues. But this could be totally something where they just, like, harp nonstop about how, all you know, turn into a national thing. All Republicans want to take away your ability to get fresh meat, you know. And it's like, it's like 
Republicans do this all the time. Remember the big uh, burger fiasco where Joe Biden was saying, you know, like part of the climate change, you know, we need to like move a little bit away from meat and like stop having red meat because uh, of all of the uh, climate ramifications of just converting all of our land to just giant fields to have all these cows to be able to have beef like in every meal. And then like, you know, they fart and all the, you know, byproducts and waste and stuff of that and all the food that has to go to them. So Republicans start screaming, Democrats don't want you to eat burgers. And and then you get Republicans going out of their way to eat like three burger patties per burger just to stick it to Joe Biden. You know, it's like and then it's like, you know, hurting the economy, obviously. And it's hurting them like, you know, in terms of their health. It's like giving them, uh, you know, heart disease long term. But I, I don't know. It's just like another one of those weird little culture war things. But it's just it's this one's interesting because it, it appears to suggest Republicans are a little oblivious that they're literally doing the thing they always accuse Democrats of doing. So. When it's silly too. I mean, if you take something like food stamps and you can say for every dollar that we spend, we actually get a dollar fifty back in economic like uh, additional output. Yeah. And it's like, why don't we give everyone in America three hundred dollars a month <laughs> for food stamps? Yeah. And they can take that three hundred dollars, buy grocery stores around the country, and then have another three hundred dollars to buy any number of other products. It's like, in a way, that's like a, a form of stimulus. That like, um, obviously, I don't think the either House of Congress would ever really want to approve. But like, if you think about it logically, if you have programs that are guaranteed to create more economic output <laughs> than what you put in, I mean, it's silly that we don't do more of that. Plus, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, we live in a country with other Americans, and, 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 and not even just Americans, but just people, and you have so many poor families in this country. Like, you're, it, it literally doesn't do the country any benefits by having undernourished, hungry children who, you know, who knows what's gonna do to their development, or their well-being, or their ability to learn in school. Yeah. And like, well, you're just repeating poverty. Like, who wants to mm-hmm. live in America that just has endless poverty that never gets fixed? And Republicans ruin every program trying to fix it, and then they cut against it. And you know, it's just like, why would you want to? You know, this is something that Joe Rogan always said. Like, why do you want more losers? Like, we should not want losers. You yeah. know, and if the, like the government get you know helping kids like develop right and just have you know like your family will have more money so the kids don't go starving to school every day. Like, that's a big way to not just keep perpetuating losers in society. And Republicans who are so social Darwinist come constantly complaining about how people don't pull themselves up by the bootstraps, blah, blah, blah. But it's like you you give a little bit of opportunity. Like it's you're not equalizing the outcome. You're just equalizing the opportunity that if you're born to a poor family, you don't have to starve and like do terrible in school because you're hungry and you don't get lunch. You know, just little things like that. Well, another um, thing I was going to say is yeah, like, go ahead. you start going down a rabbit hole of all the things you could do with that, and you start sounding like, oh, you're just a big government Democrat. Oh, you're a communist. And like that accusation makes no sense, especially in a situation like this where you're like, what if the government, which is fucking rich, just gave all the poor families, because we already know who's poor, people file taxes every year. We could target this to like people making under 50 grand a year. And if you just gave them like, let's say $150 a month, <laughs> you know what I mean? And like the, in, in a lot of ways, that would be like the state subsidizing capitalism because you'd be giving everyone $150 in their pocket to go spend on more yeah. stuff. I mean, it's like it's like an elementary And it's not school. even a radical idea because corporations love that. You know, yeah. corporations like Walmart, they have tons of employees, like a large percentage of their employees, you know, like on food stamps. I think it's gotten a little better in recent years because they've been doing raises. But Walmart's kind of like the historical great example where they actually like teach their employees how to get those benefits mm-hmm. because their wages are so low. And 
and then it's like you know maybe not good to have starving employees who have like shit lives you know so like corporations actually even like go out of their way sometimes to like help their employees get all of these benefits and like you know i guess in a way that's a pretty weird bastardization of like capitalism and like democratic socialism but you know i mean clearly uh you know corporations see the benefit in their employees getting these benefits you know well, and it's silly, too, because, like, um, one thing that kind of always annoys me is when Republicans put administrative burdens on things, they drastically increase the overhead price of the program or agency right. overseeing it. So, for example, if you were to just take people's tax returns that they already give to the IRS, and the IRS already knows how much money you make based off your W-2 forms, like, the fact that, like, if you could just give everyone $150 a month or $200 a month, you could literally eliminate the food stamps program. You need zero overhead. You don't need right. anyone employed by the government to go over paperwork. Like you don't need. Yeah, you don't any, need to hire a bunch of yeah. bureaucrats to go over the paperwork that people submit and then follow up when the paperwork's too complex for them to do it accurately. And then all what? the phone calls back. Yeah. You're just like wasting like people having to go to these offices, get the paperwork, do it wrong, have to get all this other paperwork to prove the things they're claiming that in theory the government already knows about like income work employment that kind of stuff when it's silly too because there are a lot of nonprofits that are directly and intimately involved in helping poor people apply for these government programs because of the administrative burdens and how complicated and complex doing paperwork for them and to get accepted into them has become and it's like how silly that like you have people donating money to nonprofits and that money is going to overcome the administrative problems that people in the government have purposely placed to make the program work worse and it's like not only could you help more people but that would also help you know provide more money to be donated to other nonprofits yeah, yeah. doing more important stuff that's right. not artificially created by yeah, they by make the mean programs republican conservative uh politicians yeah. who don't even like poor people or want the program to succeed to begin with <laughs> yeah so let's let's uh, change subjects from poor people to rich people. Davos, <laughs> the uh, weekly forum, uh, or I guess the annual forum of rich people who think they're like the you know the masters of the world and you know they're the geniuses who can solve all our global problems. They got together, and uh, I just wanted to run some ideas on you. I had some ideas that I think Davos should happen, but I think we should have rules if, if we're going to allow it to happen. Like the ninety nine percent, or if we're going to allow these uh, wannabe kind of like super villains, like you know get together i thought it would be funny uh with the rules of they can't fly in private planes they have to fly coach <laughs> like everybody else to get to their like secret villain convention you know i think in their meetings at davos to offset like all of you know the problems of them taking their like private jets and stuff you know there i think every chair should have like bike pedals hooked up to the energy grids so, <laughs> like when they're in their meetings all the all these yeah. billionaires should have to like constantly pedal <laughs> to like you know give back to the energy supply and like every big room where they have a keynote speaker you know there should be some kind of you have to be exerting some kind of energy to give back to the grid um I think the uh, there should be from free giveaways that have kind of like harsh that match the harsh uh, harshness of the Christian Christian literature that Baptists give away to restaurant servers as tips on Sunday after church lunches. So I think we should have like literature to give out with like graphic pictures and descriptions of how their how these billionaires' wealth is basically like just sucking up all the value of society, ruining entire communities and uh, people's lives, and basically just extracting everything good about existence. You know, for you know them to race each other to see who can become a trillionaire. Um, 
And then, let's see, if they don't tip their bartenders while they're there, they get immediately evicted. <laughs> they get a lifetime ban from Davos. I don't know. Just any, any fun ideas or thoughts to add to that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you have, like, some kind of, like, controlling authority, they can implement this stuff. Like, right. Or, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, when they eat their stupid salads and shit, like, hook them up to some kind of thing to, like, bag up their farts and make them smell. I mean, the, yeah. you could do all kinds they're, of silly yeah. stuff. If, their it, salads it, only get iceberg lettuce. Yeah. <laughs> That's a uh, halfway post uh, comedy gold right there. Yeah. Do you, yeah. Do you but, think? Uh, do you think Davos has like? Do you think it has value? Do you think they're just like basically circle jerking themselves? I think it's a hundred percent rich people circle jerking themselves. Like, I mean, when you think of all the problems in the world, like having a bunch of rich people feel good by going to Davos to have a free vacation. Well, I don't know if it's free or not, but to have a vacation in Switzerland and go rub shoulders with. I mean, you do see like those absurdly silly things where like you'll have a bunch of rich people in a room listening to some guy on a violin or something play <laughs> it's just like yeah. this is to help global warming <laughs> and it's just like, uh-huh. like right. I mean plus it, it is funny too because it's like real, like completely not understanding like your own image and what it looks like the fact that you're yeah. like oh the biggest issue is climate change and you have hundreds of people taking private jets over there <laughs> it's just so stupid. you know what's funny too the the thing too is like they're trying to like figure out all these like big complex solutions to all of our giant problems when almost all of the problems would be like uh, you know not fixed but like let's say 50% improved if they just paid their taxes they didn't lobby all of their governments within the countries where they come from to like stop unions and bust them and to like you know like fight back against any minimum wage increase like if they didn't go out of their way to just like uh, have their corporations just extract the value to where they make like you know like they pay no taxes at the corporate level and then you know they have employees making a minimum wage and on food stamps and stuff like you know if they just actually weren't selfish assholes trying to become trillionaires and they just like I don't know paid a normal tax rate to their country uh, like most of these problems like world hunger global warming would be like dramatically improved you could take that extra money uh, you know from the taxes that they would pay at the corporate and personal level and actually just feed the people you actually just improve the water supply of all these communities actually just start like you know adding filters to all the coal plants and you know funding for nuclear power plants to get off coal and fossil fuels like almost all of the problems they want to solve would be dramatically improved and beneficial if they just stop fucking like wanting to hoard all their money so they get to be the people who go to davos you know it's ironic yeah it is very ironic um i think i agree with your point completely that there are there are much easier things to do and simple ways to fix problems like like the fact that you have big businesses resist just small increases in the minimum wage. Like if there's one thing I think that's uh, probably true globally is that if you give poor people more money, they will actually care about things that aren't directly tied to their day-to-day existence and livelihood for their children. Um, so the fact that like, you know, you, I mean, if the fact that we haven't raised minimum wage, Obviously, a lot of states have raised minimum wage since the last time the national government did or the federal government. But, like, why is minimum wage not $14 an hour? Like, if, if you want people to care about climate change, why don't you pay them more than $7 or $8 or $9 an hour <laughs> yeah, for right. backbreaking work? Um, and there's, like, little things, too. Like, I mean, you have entire communities. And, and, and I, 
well, I was, I'll say this. Like, when you talk about, like, all the left-behind communities and, like, you know, Davos could be something about how to rearrange businesses or supply chains to help people in impoverished areas. I mean, in a lot of times, if you look at the history of a lot of towns, there were, there were towns that sprung up because, like, a single company was there and hired, you yeah. know, some small percentage of the men or the, the families or, you know, whoever. And, and granted, yeah, okay, there were a lot of problems back then. Okay, yeah, men were the only people with jobs and raised family, whatever, blah, 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 blah. But the point is, is that, like, you know, if you have, like, a company, how many companies need to be in New York City? Can't one of them reclo- relocate to some rural part of New York and really revive? Yeah, you know, and hire, like, that, 300 yeah. people in this town, and then suddenly, you know, now instead of, like, businesses closing up every year, you know, you get people moving in and the kids actually staying because there's actually vitality in the community again. And, and like, once you bring in, like, let's say Amazon, instead of being in whatever city they're in, have a regional headquarters in some podunk little town that benefits everybody from the hairstylist to the grocery stores, any right. mom and pop stores, the auto mechanics. And you basically are, a, I mean, I understand the point of why, like, big companies want to be where the action is, and that makes sense. But I think with everything going on with Zoom and, like, all the capabilities to travel, like, and the fact that there are so many businesses that don't really need to be near other businesses in big cities except for the fact that the CEOs and the people running them want to live in those big cities. I don't know. I mean, there's there's so many well, ways and, to do well, things in a I mean, there's way. some degree being in a city you attract better employees and stuff like that. But yeah, but I think I think the biggest thing is just the taxes. Like, you know, how many people who go to Davos from America through giant bitch fits about Obama being a communist because he wanted to raise the tax rate from 35% to 38%. So you get all these Davos people saying, how can we fix all these problems? The world's going to shit. We billionaires who are so brilliant, we need to come up with a solution. But they they threw a fit about just paying 3% more taxes. Like, you know, and like in the corporate level, like you don't already, you know, exempt most of your profits from (laughs) the tax rate anyway because of all the different like loopholes and tax code stuff you can do. But like, how about instead of going to Davos and lamenting about the downfall of society, why don't the next time Democrats want to raise the tax rate 3%, you just say, okay, and don't spend like a billion dollars to, you know, give to Republican super PACs to fight this and call it like tyranny and the Chinese Communist Party takeover of America. (laughs) Like, why don't you just pay 3% more in taxes? You, you know, you $50 billion, like, you know, sociopath, you know? Well, it's also the fact that like with climate change specifically, you have all these big CEOs talking about how we need to do more about climate change and they are doing nothing in their own supply chains to basically do that. They want to some degree. I think that might be a problem of like kind of the liberal mindset, because a lot of those people who go to Davos are super liberal and progressive, et cetera. But I think there is a problem where there's I don't know if I would necessarily agree with that. I don't know if they're overwhelmingly liberal at Davos. I would say they have a I would say they have a personal and a business interest to be a little more conservative just by the fact that you're a billionaire probably in charge of some company or hedge fund, you know. Well, either way, I would like I guess the only point I was trying to make is that that like a lot of these titans of industry and people who are influential, like you're basically begging central government, federal governments to do more of the work when whether you're a cultural person or a big business person or run a think tank or a nonprofit, there is always more that you at whatever level you're at can do 
especially if you have the money and the prestige to go to Davos and sit on these stupid panels and stuff. Um, there is always something you can do. And like maybe it's inconvenient for you personally or your company or hurts your bottom line by 2%. But the fact that like you're just begging central governments and putting, to some degree, you're, you're abrogating your own responsibility by saying, oh, well, the federal government won't do anything or why won't they do, you know what I mean? In, in, in yeah, a political system sure. like the world has, um, where every country has like similar uh, uh, electoral, constitutional, whatever have you, uh, impediments to big sweeping change that needs to happen. I mean, look no further than America. We have we have incredible political impediments to getting stuff done that's especially long-term oriented and involves short-term uh, consequences or short-term inconvenience specifically. I mean, mm-hmm. there is so much more room for businesses, nonprofits, and influential people to try to do more rather than just shifting all the blame on the federal government. And, oh, Democrats and Biden <laughs> yeah. can't get this done. Right. Like, well, yeah. I mean, I mean the fact that matter is And then flying a most... private jet to Davos in this yeah. lu- like luxury resort and then circle jerking each other. <laughs> I mean, in a lot of ways, like we have a lot of the like the climate movement has a lot going for it where like between electric cars and like renewable energy, like the problem is being solved too slow, uh, too small and too slow. But like at least we're on the glide slope up. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think just more attention uh, uh, tied to the little things is important. But but also the fact that like most carbon emissions, I saw a report that was basically saying most carbon emissions worldwide are from, you know, 100 companies. (laughs) That's not the that's not the U.S. government's fault. That is that like there are a few dozen companies that contribute the lion's share of carbon emissions and that they need to inconvenience themselves, inconvenience And make slightly less profits. Yeah, and inconvenience (laughs) their shareholders a small amount more to do the right thing and solve the problem or get it on the wide slope faster. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, to some degree, like the federal government, right? Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I think there should be more shaming. I remember like maybe about a year ago or something, it was coming out, I think maybe in the summer, it was coming out, somebody was like keeping track of all of the uh, the the water usage fines that celebrities were using, because you know, like the Kardashians, like all these big celebrities that have mansions, and I guess in the middle of summer when California is having massive droughts and forest fires, they want to take all the water. Like sometimes it was like ridiculous amounts of water, like, like over like 200,000 gallons to water their lawns and keep their grass green. But there was like a big kind of shaming thing that went on where like, I forget who it was, maybe it was some newspaper journalist or something was like actually recording all this and just, you know, talking about all the all the celebrities who are rich and famous with mansions and just like shaming them for how much water they were using. And I think we should use more of that. I think that should happen every year. There's like, you know, Kardashians, you should have brown fried grass in the middle of August when the state is losing all of its water. And then the uh, Hoover Dam uh, reservoir is like drying up to the point where like the dam doesn't even work anymore. Yeah, if you're using 300,000 gallons of water to have green grass in August because you're a rich fuck, like, you know, you, you deserve to have your name, uh, like, trash and, like, newspapers and, like, uh, articles digitally all around the uh, the country for all summer. Don't well, you think? I mean, is- maybe we could do something, like, with the people at Davos. I'm sure, yeah. you know, if we, like, kept track of all these billionaires, like, their company's carbon emissions or something like that, like, I think shaming rich people uh, is absolutely something we should do because they're the ones, like... Rich people overwhelmingly use more, pollute more. They're flying planes everywhere constantly, you know. Certainly there's, like, systemic issues that, like, 
Obviously, the government needs to like have regulations that planes need to be cleaner and cut off the emissions. But like, you know, fundamentally, you know, like you get the Kardashians to take private jets, like, you know, 20 minute flights because they don't want to drive an hour or something, you know, get a limo ride for an hour. So they do a private jet ride for 20 minutes like every day. Like that is a problem. (laughs) Yeah, that is absolutely a problem. Um, Certainly at the state level, like when you're talking about like like why does there need to be farmland <laughs> in Arizona like the amount right. of water it takes to keep that going like and, and, and the fact that like uh, in America you know the breadbasket of certainly the north <laughs> north america you can't find somewhere else to grow crops i mean i mean that's a that's right. a big complicated thing the states need to be more involved the federal yeah. government could be but I mean, some, yeah the, flying into i'll tell you this flying in over california like you fly into las vegas or phoenix or um, like Palm Springs. Palm Springs is the worst because there's like, I swear to God, I've never seen more golf courses in my life than flying over Palm Springs. And it's in the middle of the desert. That should, like looking at that from the air, me, a layperson who does, who's not an economic genius, you know, I'm just looking at that and like, yeah, there should not be that many green golf courses in the middle of this desert surrounded by desert mountains with no water supply, you know, on its own. It has to take it from rivers way across the country. And and like that just should not be allowed you know palm well, springs then, as a city shouldn't really be allowed i agree and i would say that like it, it's funny too because there's such simple economic solutions to some of these problems for example if the state says okay you're going to pay x amount of money per gallon of water as fines or for a license and then like have that money go to water restoration projects like the fact that like rich people want their cake and eat it too like they want something to be done about climate change but they don't want their golf business to be hurt and they want to be able to play golf at eight different locations in their city in the fucking middle of the desert like i mean there's nothing stop like i don't know I mean, you know, the whole idea of economics is just that people respond to incentives. So if you were to tax, if the state government were to be proactive and say, we're going to set up a water restoring fund and basically tax people, like you can have your golf course, but now your golf game is going to cost $350 and all that money is going to go to the state government to basically have some kind of water reforestation or greenification or water reservoirs, water protection programs. Like you, I mean, that's like the funny thing about government is there, there are often in so many easy solutions to things that there's just political ineptitude incompetence and just like the lack of will to actually take a problem seriously and then like again like maybe the state government but it's not even that i wouldn't even say it's like apathy on the government or ignorance or lack of awareness or lack of effort it's literally the problem is like the rich people they just flood the zone with shit with money you know that like shit money and they just like any regulation they gin up all these poor people to think that's infringing on my rights but it's like the golf course you know it's infringing our rights to have water but it's like a billionaire paid for this legislative push to gut all regulations because they want to build a ninth golf course in palm springs you know it's like mm-hmm. that's it's like it's kind of nefarious and it's those fuckers who go to davos anyway uh head, we're we're at an hour now let's uh, close up on this last thought here let's get into the horse race of 2024 just some fun speculation <laughs> i think that's a kind of a fun thing to like do reoccurringly is just jump into the horse race here and there <laughs> Uh, there's a little bit of a kerfuffle. Uh, apparently, Mike Pompeo and Nikki Haley are having a little drama. I think like Mike Pompeo's people like leaked some story about Nikki Haley or something about wanting to be VP or something, which clearly I think that's the play for both of those two. 
I think Mike Pompeo and Nikki Haley, their presidential hopes are like getting nominated as a VP and then hoping the president has a heart attack or something. You know, I think that's uh, I don't think either of them really have a chance. Um, but uh, yeah. Uh, and then meanwhile, I think Ted Cruz, what do you think Ted Cruz is up to? Perennial presidential candidate. You know, he's going to run again. But what do you think? Do you, what do you think his strategy could be, should be? Uh, what do you think he's trying to make alliances with people behind the scenes right now? <laughs> I think no everyone's turning him down for alliances. I imagine. Um, and I think I've heard like plenty of other people talk about this, but I think the most likely outcome for 2024 is that 15 Republicans run and Trump is going to get a plurality again, just like in 2016. Yeah. And then they're going to stay in basically to try to get the VP spot or some kind of top government job. And we're probably almost certainly if Trump actually, you know, does the work and get his name on the ballot. I mean, he's already running. He says he's running. So I, I, I find it impossible to believe that he won't win by a plurality. There are too many people who want yeah. to be president in the Republican Party. They've been waiting their turn. They think they can beat, you know, they're not going to be able to, I don't know well, what they you know think. What, they're, they're not going to be able to beat Just off our Trump. counter theory, I wonder if this election might be a little bit different because if Trump's running and they don't want a mean tweet to ruin their career, I would, I would, I wonder if, like, actually, this election, you would actually get a lot of people waited out just for the next term. Because in twenty twenty eight, Trump is, you know, term limited. If he mm-hmm. loses again, I, you know, <laughs> maybe I guess he'll run again if he's in prison or not in prison. I don't. Maybe he'll just keep running until his like Adderall infused heart gives out or something. But I, I wouldn't be surprised actually if a lot of Republicans are say would say, I don't want to get in the mud with Trump. I can wait another four years. That would be the smart move for them, in which case we will absolutely have Trump <laughs> be the nominee. Because really, I don't think, I think there's very, what very if, few people What if it was right only now. like DeSantis and Cruz, you think Trump would easily, what if there's only like three or four people? And then maybe you get like a Larry Hogan or a Chris Sununu or somebody like as a moderate candidate who will obviously go nowhere, but, you know, have that kind of like lane for that like 3% of the well, Republican how many, Party. I mean, if there's three or four people, how many ways can you split four people running? And if Trump's got a floor of 30%, he'll win. No. You know, but I no, but I could primary. I could see I could see like Trump I could see Trump at forty like DeSantis at thirty Ted Cruz at ten and then a bunch of random candidates like this like two percent or something like that I'm not I'm just saying I you know again we're we're jumping into the horse race years and years yeah. early I'm just uh I think uh for I think most of the parties kind of settling on the idea that like DeSantis is the guy who can and should and could take on Trump. Um, granted, uh, I think we talked about this before that like most Americans have not heard uh, DeSantis talk, and he's got he's kind of building. He's not really doing any press or anything. He's not going after Trump, but like kind of behind the scenes, people are kind of commenting that he's kind of boring. He's kind of doesn't have the personality <laughs> skills that Trump has, and he's kind of a dick. And he's like doubling down on like going after businesses in Florida that like are kind of like he considers woke. So I don't know if like DeSantis will be a charming guy. You know, to be a total asshole like Trump, you need kind of Trump's like gaudy, uh, you know, showman kind of charm i mean trump does have some degree of charm you know that it's like partly because he's a fucking idiot but you know he's like he's like a dick in terms of like the people he goes after but you know trump doesn't burn potential allies like i think maybe desantis is kind of like building up a reputation for right now Mm -hmm. well um there's also the fact that DeSantis is most people have never heard him talk like you said but that like he's actually a boring kind of annoying guy and that like yeah. he's not very in he's not particularly likable necessarily 
I it would be funny I, if Trump in like one tweet just burns Rick, like Ron DeSantis yeah. <laughs> like with one tweet or something like yeah. you know Ron DeSantis like star power can't like last a week <laughs> against Trump or something which I wouldn't be surprised I mean you, you saw that like photo op everyone was mocking him Ron DeSantis for wearing those like big white galoshes <laughs> when he went to the hurricane yeah. or whatever and like everyone's kind of mocking it. it did look pretty ridiculous but like american politics is so superficial that like that like if he did that on the national stage and trump tweeted jokes about it and started calling mm-hmm. him like galoshes boy or something like that could like we're superficial enough as a culture and society that that might just like totally stop any ron DeSantis <laughs> momentum <laughs> i will say i hope he runs because i would love to see Hip, because if if he runs, he's gonna have to fight against Trump. Trump's gonna you know come out arms swinging, and it'll be yeah. great to see that. Um, I mean, at the end and of the day, of, yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say, at the end of the day, Trump's kind of a loser. He's a tried and true loser in multiple yeah. things before he even got involved in politics. And the fact that like all of the Republicans are afraid to say anything negative about him, I just can't wait to see when's that. When's the first person gonna like on a debate stage tell him to his face that he's an absolute loser and lost to Joe Biden, a man that he claimed was a nobody in in his basement hiding during COVID, you brain dead, <laughs> yeah, brain dead zombie, <laughs> <laughs> being held up by strings and pulleys by yeah. Nancy Pelosi, I guess, presumably, uh-huh. and AOC. <laughs> uh, what you, speaking of Trump, what do you think he's doing at Mar-a-Lago right now? Because like Crashing I guess weddings he's and talking about his uh, yeah hurt feelings. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it's funny though because I was I was thinking about this. It's like you know, in a way, Trump is like the closest thing America's had to like the Sun King, like Louis the Fourteenth in Versailles. The way Trump had like these properties and golf courses, and he got like the entire like you know uh, apparatchiks of the Republican Party, and even like foreign governments to go like buy out floors of his you know hotels, stay at Mar-a-Lago, uh, you know, uh, stay at uh, like all of his properties around the world, and just funnel money to him. You know, they buy out like fl- apparently floors of Trump Tower. <laughs> they give Ivanka random trademarks in China for random shit. You know, it's like, but like you just see like Trump. Trump with like the gaudy New York apartment with gold everywhere. Like he he redesigned the Oval Office with gold curtains and gold accents, like Mar-a-Lago. I mean, he kind of is like the closest thing we had to this like gaudy uh, like king, like like absolute monarch in a way. You know, he certainly had that uh, mentality and that intellectual <laughs> uh, you know self of him that he thought he was kind of like you know I guess like God's representative on Earth or something, but. Well, I wonder if it's, heard... like, really lonely for him here at Mar-a-Lago. Because now that he's president, no one's, like, you know, no one's really spending the money. No one's going there to kiss the ring all the time. Like, yeah. I wonder if he really is lonely just, you know, feeling sorry for himself as he golfs there. And even, like, people don't even want to golf with him anymore. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And he's not exactly a family man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's not sitting, he's not spending more time with Barron and, uh, you know, going to church holding Melania's hand. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, do you think, uh, any uh, other thoughts do you think on uh, Donald Trump uh, sits down with uh, Barrett and plays video games with him or tries to do what he wants to do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't, yeah. I can't imagine right. Trump like sitting on the floor playing with Legos with his kids, you know? <laughs> yeah. Trump famously bragged that he doesn't raise his kids and just like introduces himself when they're 18 <laughs> and says, wow, look how you turned out. I must be a really good parent. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, any other thoughts on the horse race though? Twenty twenty four. You want to make any bold predictions of who will, get, who will win the nomination right now? <laughs> no, I think I think Trump will win because I think if Ron DeSantis is smart, he won't run, and then that'll leave a bunch of uh, basically. Um, Feckless. Mike Pompeo and Mike Pence. Yeah, a bunch of feckless <laughs> nobodies who are afraid to stand up for themselves. So, like, how can you win a public event against Trump when you're not when you're not like Mike uh, Mike Pence is a great example. If you can't stand up for your own self and your wife and your family, the fact that like your family was with you when the mob was coming for you and you can't stand up to Trump about that, like the mob like, that was <laughs> chanting "Hang Mike Pence." <laughs> yeah. Hang Mike Pence, and they wanted to hang him in public for not uh, overthrowing the election results. Well, like, imagine, like, I mean, I think of it, too, in a way, like, the immaturity of Trump. Like, imagine if you won't do your coworker's work for you, and your coworker you don't particularly like says, I won't be your friend anymore. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's such an immature way to handle things. But, you know, in addition to him trying to ha- lead a, uh, a coup against the United States government, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> I just love right. that. He says, I won't be your friend anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> such a juvenile way. Yeah. To, but, yeah. Right. Well, uh, that's all the notes I got for this week. You got anything? No. I think anything else? Good. Last thoughts? It's an hour and all 14, right. so. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>